0: Hello again, and welcome to Crosswinds, a series of conversations with America's healthcare leaders produced by the Visient Research Institute. I'm Tom Robertson, Executive Director of the Institute, and I'm pleased to welcome an old and very good friend, David Randall, Chief Strategy Officer at UAB Health System in Birmingham, Alabama, where he's been since 2004. He's one of the most creative minds in American medicine. David, thanks for making time to be with us.
1: Oh, it's my pleasure, Tom. Thank you so much for this opportunity. I look forward to the discussion.
0: You know, I'd like to start out by talking about something that you and I have in common. We've done a lot of research together over the years, collaborating on projects, and we've done this work around the typical business model of of health systems, which you're very familiar with, where we make uh, hundreds of millions of dollars on a small subset of our patients. They tend to be covered by private insurance. We lose hundreds of millions of dollars on government-insured patients, and And then we just kind of break even in the middle, Uh, most of that being our low acuity or our ambulatory care stuff. Normal businesses tend to make small margins on everything that they do. We've got this uh, kind of bipolar business model that's particularly vulnerable as the baby boomers age toward Medicare. Do you see this ending well?
1: Yeah, I think it's a significant challenge for us. And you're right. We've run through that analysis where we actually looked at margin by patient and created that percentile. We called it uh, the ubiquitous S-curve. And you're right. It's not like another industry where it's based on volume, uh, low margin. It really is based on the two spikes and how much we can balance off the high and the low on those spikes. I do worry, and I remember years ago, you and I talking about this, as we see this migration of the baby boomers to Medicare, we'd had the conversation, can we survive kind of across the board on Medicare rates? And I think unanimously the answer was no. On our current cost structure, there's no way that we could survive on those rates. And so I do worry, and and I know that other guests have talked about, um, how do we think about changing, modifying, adjusting, focusing on our cost structure? But yet we've been doing this for years. I don't know that we're all fat and happy. You know, the focus even right now is on cost. And we're in this perfect storm of seeing escalation of supply costs, increase in salary wages and benefits. And so we're in this dilemma right now where we can't cut cost easily because they're not quite in our control. And as we mentioned earlier, we can't push those increases onto consumers. We're not a restaurant. We're not a, you know, an auto dealer where we can continue to push those out for the most part, our reimbursement is capped. And so I don't see this ending well in terms of our ability to continue to deliver the care that we're doing today. So I think two things have to come from that. One, can we, again, reimagine the care model? How can we do it differently than what we're doing today? It's hyperbole, but I talk about disruption in the industry. And I've made uh, presentations where I say, okay, what, what's the largest hospitality chain in the country? And folks say Marriott, Hilton, those kind of things. And no, it's Airbnb. That's the largest. And the question is, Okay, how many rooms do they own? Well, they don't. They don't own any rooms. And how quickly can they scale up? Well, they can scale up overnight at zero cost. So how do we think differently about capital, about assets, about investments in the platform and how we deliver the care? And and again, we've got to think, are there different models out there? And the second thing is we talk a lot about diversifying revenue. And to be honest, Tom, I'm not sure what that is exactly. You know, do we go into selling, you know, food at food trucks? I mean, what, what does diversification mean to us in the industries that we're in? But we are very vulnerable in terms of our portfolio because it is singularly focused. And I think COVID, I mean, you may have said this, COVID indicated that we are highly vulnerable on unnecessary activity because when we shut down all those elective cases, it brought us to our knees. So not many other industries are dependent upon unnecessary goods or services, but we are. So how do we diversify that piece? How do we um, increase the revenue side instead of the cost side? Because again, we are not going to cost cut our way out of this. In fact, healthcare, if you think about it, technology, unlike any other industry where technology drives cost inefficiencies down or better, if you will, that's not true in healthcare. It seems like technologies increase cost over and over again. So the model i think is not attainable to the extent particularly if we go to a single or to a like a medicare flat rate across the board
0: you know it's interesting you mentioned revenue diversification and it triggered an idea in my head rather than thinking about revenue diversification in terms of revenue coming in by selling different things what if i gave you the revenue as a global spending budget so that it wasn't tied to any particular thing that you had done but it was yours to do with what you thought you needed for the patient's best interest. Isn't that a kind of a left-handed sort of revenue diversification?
1: I think it is. It it allows you to not focus so much on the volume churn Mm -hmm. and allows you to think differently about that. It allows us to be much more innovative in that model of care. Because here's the other issue. You could continue to pay me a gazillion dollars, but the reality is we don't have the capacity either to provide care to those patients. And so how do we think differently about the capacity component, about how we engage patients outside of the four walls of the hospital, whether it's hospital home, whether it's, again, remote patient monitoring. And again, it's it's that global budget, it's the revenue model that will allow us to do that. And so I think we do need to break the current chain of volume-based reimbursement in order for us not only to have the flexibility of innovation, but quite frankly, to deal with the capacity component. Because if we don't fix the capacity piece, be it infrastructure, be it clinical FTEs, uh, we're still going to be struggling to provide the care and the services that we want to. I mean, ultimately, we need to think much more about what are the upstream products or services that we can provide so that they aren't coming to the downstream and the high infrastructure, high cost platform that that exists today. If you think about why hospitals were built the way they were, I mean, you got to go back a couple decades you needed to have that central location, that central spot, because that's where your medical record was, that's where your physicians were, that's where your technology was, uh, your high-cost imaging, et cetera. That doesn't really exist today anymore. And if we could take advantage of E and Tela, et cetera, I think we can make a difference in both the reach of care and the reach of activity, but also think innovatively about how we deliver that.
0: You know, that relationship between productivity-based payment and negotiations is a good place for us to maybe take a left turn. You've been leading strategy in healthcare for a long time. Where do you think the current payment system does the most harm by perhaps giving disincentives to do the right thing? And where does it give incentives for us to do the wrong
1: thing? You know, I think it comes down to one key theme, and that is we are not paid to do the right thing, ultimately. We're still paid, I think Will Fernani had mentioned this earlier, we're still paid based on sick care, not well care. And so to that extent, we will continue to be focused on sick and volume-based activity. And that truly is a disincentive to what we would like to do. And until we get paid more aggressively and more completely for prevention and for wellness, we won't be able to do what's right for the patient. I mean, we love that mantra, do what's right for the patient. The payers aren't focused on what's right for the patient. To a large extent, they're focused on maximizing shareholder value. They're focused on bottom line, which in some cases can be in significant conflict to what's right for the patient. Until we get to, I'm going to call it the win-win between the providers and the payers, I think we'll continue to be stressed by these disincentives of doing what's right versus what we're getting paid for and what we're getting reimbursed for. And we got to find that win-win. And it is a challenge to me because... I think you had Dixon on earlier who had mentioned, I think it was a hospital at home funding coming to an end. And it's demonstrated that it's, it's better for the patient, better quality, better outcomes. Why can't we get the payers on board? Why do we have a misalignment between what's best for the patient? And quite frankly, if we can convey to the payers, it does help the bottom line. And it does help with shareholder returns. Then I think we can get to that win-win, but we're not having those types of conversations. And I think maybe it's a language barrier between the not-for-profit providers and the payers, but we've got to figure out how to break that barrier so that we can get to this win-win, so that we can get that alignment and payment.
0: About 100 years ago, I was a payer. And what I think is at the root of the problem is the adversarial relationship between payers and providers. We are, by design, placed at a bargaining table across a six-foot panel of wood from each other. And we're negotiating, but we're negotiating not holistically, we're negotiating unit prices. And so your loss is my win, kind of an adversarial relationship, I think is deleterious to where we're heading. One of the things that strikes me, David, is if we could get price off the table so that you weren't negotiating prices, let's say we regulated the prices and they were established what we could get to is a situation where your conversations would be about things like care processes rather than unit prices. And I just wish you guys weren't adversaries at the bargaining table.
1: And I don't know if it's just like you said, if the history is still there and lagging and we can't get past it. Because again, we can have these conversations with payers and say, hey, this is actually good for you too, but there's a mistrust. Mm-hmm. And so they're thinking, oh, okay, is this really good for me? Or are you just trying to get extension of service and payments? So I would agree if price wasn't an issue, I think we could have much broader, more comprehensive conversations that not only what would be best for the payer would come out of that, but also for the patient. Because if price is not an issue, the payers then will be focusing on value, right? Because their competition is going to be, I need more enrollees. And so they're going to figure out how do I demonstrate value to the employers? How do I think about getting their employees back to work quicker? And so you change the whole dialogue to focus more on that health and prevention and well-being than truly the sick care.
0: And even if you're talking about sick care, we could shift the conversation from unit price to episodic cost. You know, what does an episode of illness cost to take care of rather than the widgets? Right. I just think we have to get our eye off of the widgets and onto the episode.
1: Right. And it's not full capitation, but to your point, you think about cancer care. Okay, we're going to look at the cost of that care over maybe it's nine months. Maybe it's two years and how we better manage that care and, again, get that patient not just home, but back to the highest function possible. Best for the patient, best for the payer. So I'm hopeful we can get to that over time. But to your point, it seems we can't let bygones be bygones. It's like a bad marriage. You're pointing back to the past. It's hard for us to think futuristic. How can we truly come together? There really are win-wins if we're willing to have that dialogue. It may be just a couple key payers that could come to the table nationally to have this dialogue, can we get united, can we get Blue Cross to really step up and have a national discussion about this, as opposed to right now we're all piecemealing and negotiating our little fiefdoms and not thinking nationally about how we could pull this off.
0: Let's pretend for a moment that we did get price off of the bargaining table and that prices were established in such a way that all payers, whether they were private insurers or the public payers, they were all paying the same unit prices. Now, that wouldn't mean that a tertiary quaternary medical center would be paid the same thing for a given service as a low acuity provider would be, but it would mean that all of the payers were paying about the same prices. So if you woke up in that kind of a world, thinking about strategy the way you have in the past versus thinking about strategy in that kind of a setting, what are some of the biggest, maybe most eye-popping changes in the strategic direction that you would take. Give me an example or two of things that would be so different as to be interesting to talk about.
1: It's interesting. I would say, thankfully, UAB has been fairly payer agnostic historically. You know, we pay our faculty for services regardless of payer. Through our funds flow model, every RVU is measured the same. And so that's certainly been beneficial in terms of access. And I will also say, as you know, in our projections, we don't look at payers. We project growth and volume based on margin, regardless of payer. Now, the risk there, Thomas, if we do a great job growing X, Y, and Z and the payer mix shifts, that might not be so good for us long term. But we've been trying to, you know, to a large extent, been payer agnostic there. I think, though, taking the payer off the table to a large extent would allow us to think about that delivery of care model that's outside that four wall component, right? Because we're not being driven based on that S-curve anymore. We're being driven on how to deliver care, again, I think, episodically. The other piece, though, that would still be, I think, underlying in all of our projections, we're still going to be chasing higher margin volume. We're going to get paid more for these DRGs than these DRGs, even though the payers are paying the same. It does change the fact, okay, we want to continue to focus on high margin. And so part of the same payment by payer doesn't address, I think, the differences between what surgical, in medicine, DRGs, if I'm saying that right. Yep. And I think we've got to get there. Cause again, that's, I think that's where COVID nailed us in terms of what we're highly dependent upon. And I think we need to fix that piece of that model as well so that we can create greater neutrality based on true effort and activity. Cause I'm still going to be chasing surgeries. I'm still going to be chasing the high end stuff, even though we're getting paid the same as I am today. So as much as I'd like to say it radically changes, I don't know that it does for how we think about projections and how we think about growth. I think we've been historically payer agnostic. If
0: we want to change your eye, we have to lessen the economic gap between interventional procedures and medical cases and that sort of
1: a thing. Exactly. That's one piece. And I think the other thing, we could be paid the same for this DRG, but you're not paying me for the home health and you're not paying me for mental health. Yep. Within the four walls, that's great we're not fixing everything else we kind of started with, which is what's the community wraparound that we've got to address. You know, I always say, if we do the right thing and we keep our community healthy, we go out of business. So we've got to figure out how do we get paid for the right thing. So take that payer parity and let's say, you know what, let's smash that. Instead, will payers be willing to pay for those outreach programs, for nutrition and health education, for transportation? for expansion of mental health services uh, in the community setting. That's where I think we really can make a significant impact. And that's what will drive the economics for healthcare.
0: It's a fascinating cul-de-sac that you just took me down because the business that the insurers are in is not wellness or patient well-being. The business that the insurers are in is managing the piecemeal costs of the care processes that we're dealing with right now. So we would need everybody right. to change their view of who they are and what they're doing.
1: Right. I'd love for us not to negotiate on the DRG-based or, heaven forbid, a per diem, but rather we're talking about how are we going to pay for nutrition and health mm-hmm. that's outside of the four walls. How do we do that? How do we get benefit from that? And work together in terms of the delivery of that because we've got amazing assets Between the providers and the payers. It's how do we collectively work together to be able to deliver that?
0: You know, the country is rightly becoming increasingly less tolerant of health disparities than we were just a few years ago. And we agonize about how can we move from where we've been to where we want to be? We'll have to change everything. You and I just got done talking about changing, you know, the underlying business model of a major insurance industry. If I suggested that rather than trying to overhaul the entire system, that the quickest first step toward uh, reducing health disparities would be for the government to unilaterally raise its prices, lessening the impact. You said you're payer agnostic. I think that's admirable. Some folks can't afford to be payer agnostic. Others have chosen not to be payer agnostic. I wonder what you think if the government was simply to say, you know, we're going to unilaterally raise our prices to lessen the economic pressure on providers to favor the privately insured over the government insured. Would you think I was completely crazy acknowledging as a country for a while, we'll spend more
1: right. that way? I get it. I would never say you were crazy, Tom. However, what I thought was interesting and in what you just mentioned, if they raised the unit price- That doesn't solve two underlying factors. One, we're still being driven on volume. We'll get paid more, but we only get paid more based on volume. So we haven't changed the volume churn and burn, if you will. And second, as probably almost all of your members, my cohorts, we're full. So you could pay me a little bit more, but I don't have an extra bed. Mm -hmm. I can't get you to see a cardiologist for two or three months. So great, I appreciate the payment, but I can't get you in. And so I think that the volume issue and the capacity issue still has to be addressed with even that across the board increase. And so I would say, and I think you mentioned this earlier, it's not increasing the unit price. It's this concept of global budgeting and global payment that I think would be advantageous because now we're moving away from volume based, right? And we're thinking more population based and we can adjust and modify capacity, community health workers, EMS, others to be able to be a care delivery mechanism for us instead of the traditional model. I love this idea of global payments. And in fact, Tom, we have a very unique situation now where we are currently running the county indigent clinic for Jefferson County in Alabama. It's one of the few government-funded ambulatory clinics, I think, in the country. It really is a global cap. We get paid based on sales tax revenue, completely 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 disconnected with volume or clinical activity whatsoever. But it has freed up tremendous resources in our mindset and what we can do. We're not hamstrung by volume or what you can pay for what you can't based on regulatory requirements. We're able to do some very novel things with this population, including like food delivery services, transportation services, outreach and mental health, working with the churches to provide clinics in the churches, actually talking about providing clinics in some of the housing communities. And I really see that as, you know, is this kind of our petri dish to say, okay, can global budgeting work? It's in a microcosm, but it's also with the most vulnerable populations that we serve. So if we can show results and outcomes, I'm very optimistic. It could be a model of care for us going forward and hopefully a benchmark for us.
0: I'm fascinated by that notion. The fact that you've got this experiment going on It frees you up to irrigate some of these medical deserts that we've had for so long without needing to wait for a financial mechanism to provide that incentive. It's just frustrating as can be, right? To think that we have to wait for the payment system to get smart enough to get resources to people that need them. What we really need to do is turn you guys loose. If this were a stock, I would go long on the underserved stock, because I think the American society is going to become increasingly intolerant of those health disparities, and that somehow or other, we're going to find a way to fund the care in places where it hasn't been. And there's way more incremental quote-unquote market share or business for a healthcare entity in the underserved areas than there is getting two more hip replacements out of a suburban marketplace.
1: Absolutely, and the returns are so much greater from that standpoint. And quite frankly, it's the right thing to do. I remember Will and I talking about this Jefferson County, you know, initially we're getting beat up a little bit on this stuff politically and are we trying to take over and are we going to cut all the funding and employees? And I remember him saying, just hang in there, just kind of deal with the politics because quite frankly, it's just the right thing to do. And that's not very often that you can enter into those situations truly with that mantra and see on the flip side, the outcomes that, yeah, it is, it's the right thing to do. and, And what an impact we're already making just in a very short period of time.
0: You know, We always try to close our conversations with a question that allows folks to get a chance to know you a little better than they did before. And you and I both went to snooty business schools, but mine never had a class in equine economics. How did you first decide to invest in diabetic horses?
1: Oh, my goodness. You know, it's my uh, ultra ego. As you know, Tom, we've gone opposite everybody else. We've moved out. We've got 60 acres south of Birmingham. And somehow we now have something like twelve horses where we are boarding and breeding. I've built an arena out here, which I would have never thought. Um, and on top of that, now we've gone from um, breeding labs and Dutch shepherds to French bulldogs and American bullies. So somehow I've created this this petting zoo <laughs> south of Birmingham, which I call affectionately my second job. So, yeah, it's been quite a shift. I would have never seen it coming. But I will say, I think um, where I do see benefit in this gentleman rancher concept is you actually get to see things getting done. So you and I are in an industry where it's really hard for things to actually get to an end point, where you can actually see a project wrapped up. I go out here this afternoon and bush hog an acre, and I see the grass cut. But so I need that. (laughs) I need those pods of reinforcements of things actually being accomplished. So far, so good. I call myself simply the ranch hand out here. My wife actually runs the show. Uh, But it's been a nice output, if you will. And, uh, you know, COVID's been a benefit from that standpoint because I've been able to be on the ranch quite a bit. So there has been at least a positive side to it.
0: Well, David, I would tell our listeners that you have something that can't be taught. You have to recruit it. And what I think that is an innate intellectual curiosity. We've worked together on research projects over the years, I always feel smarter after finishing a project with you. Thanks a million for spending some time with us today. I look forward to seeing you again, hopefully at the ranch if you'll have me for a visit.
1: Absolutely. I've got a cowboy hat and a saddle in your size. (laughs) Appreciate the opportunity. Thank you so much, Tom.
0: You betcha. And thank you for listening in. We hope you find these conversations thought-provoking and we look forward to welcoming you back for a future Crosswinds. I'm Tom Robertson. Until then.